Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can someone just uh, give me please a sound check? Make sure that everyone can hear me okay. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين ما بعد so inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our tafsir of surah al-duha and we are on verse number 5 currently uh, but just before i forget i have a couple of announcements that i want to make or just a couple of things just to uh, make a reminder uh, for us i believe that this coming uh, sunday in the uk uh, is going to be uh, the clocks are going to go forward so we enter into into summer time so our clocks go one hour forward uh, but our class time will remain the same as 8 p.m uk time so for those of you that are from the uk or in the uk then you just kind of stick to the 8 p.m uk time uh, it is coming closer to maghrib uh, but i think for next week inshallah ta'ala we're okay still to do uh, eight o'clock because maghrib is around 7 40 ish so we still have a good 20 minutes or so uh, for the class uh, between Maghrib and the class. Uh, for those of you that are outside of the UK, obviously, then you need to look into your own, uh, you know, the time differences and the time zones between you and the UK. But the clocks will be going forward, inshallah ta'ala, this Sunday. So UK time uh, next week will still be 8 o'clock. The week after, though, will most likely be changed. Uh, I think we only have one week left after that before Ramadan. So the final lesson may be like 8.30 UK time. Uh, just because uh, Maghrib will come into being much closer uh, for that week towards 8 o'clock. So we'll have to delay it by, or maybe even 15 minutes. We will see, inshallah ta'ala. But the important thing is, uh, the first announcement is the next week is still 8 o'clock UK time, irrespective of the time clock change. But obviously, if you're outside of the UK, then you need to factor that in, in terms of your own time difference between where you are and the UK. The second uh, point that I wanted to mention was regarding what I touched upon last week and that is the survey that we're going to give out inshallah ta'ala. Uh, that's going to be given out but what I will do is inshallah in the next day or two it will be sent on the QP um, the QP chat that we have on, on our telegram uh, group. So the telegram group, the QP chat, that's where it will be given and that way inshallah ta'ala you can, it will be like a Google form and you can fill that in and give it back to us. And it's not going to be an extremely long uh, survey, but at the same time, I will be asking for some detail. So other than the basics, you know, like we will be asking you for some detailed feedback. And obviously, in the more detail that you can provide, the better it is, without obviously going into paragraphs and paragraphs either. So, uh, you know, please remember, someone probably has to read all of this at the end. So uh, let's, like we, inshallah, we will we'll try to strike a balance between needing the information that we need or gathering the information that we need, but without really going into excess detail that is unneeded as well. Uh, and that's, inshallah, those are the two points that I wanted to mention. And so let us go back to our tafsir. We'll start with our tafsir class for today. So last week we <coughs> we were looking at verses 2 to 4. Verses 2, 3 and 4 of Surah Al-Duha. And the week before we did the first verse. And essentially Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah takes an oath by the day and he takes an oath by the night. And we said last week that the word either saja or layli either saja that the scholars of tafsir 
have different tafsir as to in terms of what the meaning of the word sajjah is. Is it the beginning of the night? Is it the end of the night? Or is it when the night settles, when you have complete darkness and stillness of the night? And that is a position that most of the scholars chose. They chose that third of the, the three opinions that you find amongst the scholars of tafsir. But either way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by those two affairs or those two issues. And then he gives us the jawab al-qasam in verse number three. And that is, مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking the oaths so as to establish the principle that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has not been forsaken, nor has he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is he someone who is hated or detested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And we mentioned last week, uh, you know, the, the statement of Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, he does a whole thing in Fathul Bari as to the different causes of revelation that are mentioned for this surah and the different narrations that you find in the books of Athar and narrations and hadith and so on that speak about why or what the cause of revelation was for these particular verses, what took place, what was the story. And we'd already mentioned that the most authentic of those narrations is the one that we find in Sahih al-Bukhari. But then Ibn Hajar ta'ala mentions that there are other you know, versions that you find other narrations. Some, some narrations say that the Prophet ﷺ had a dog in his house and therefore Jibreel ﷺ wouldn't go in. Others say that it was connected to those questions in Surah Al-Kahf the questions that the Jewish rabbis of Medina were asked, and, and you have a number of those. And Ibn Hajr ta'ala more or less dismisses all of them as being the cause of revelation for this particular surah. So even though those issues may be established in the sunnah generally, that there was an occasion where that incident took place or the other one took place, linking what is the general hadith with a cause of revelation is something which requires more than just simply, you know, like a similarity in circumstance or there are similar wordings. There has to be an explicit mention of the two being tied up, the two being tied one to another. And this is something which we mentioned in our reading commentary of Zamzami, right? Zamzami himself says that the way that you find, and he's obviously taken from Imam Siyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says the way that you know about Asbabul Nuzul, causes of revelation, is where you have within it a clear indication in the texts. Because it's not for anyone else to be able to determine what was the cause of revelation or if there was or wasn't a cause of revelation that can only be determined by an authentic narration and so that is the point that we were making in a zimzimi and it's the point that therefore even Hajar also takes and he says the one that is explicitly mentioned is the narration in Sahih Bukhari the other narrations that are mentioned have weakness in them and the authentic form of those narrations some of those narrations are authentic like the the issue of the, uh, a dog being, or a picture of a dog being in the house of the Prophet ﷺ and so the angels wouldn't come in. There are authentic narrations with that meaning. But those authentic narrations don't say anything about Surah Al-Duha being revealed. And so as Ibn Hajar says, it seems that some narrators mix things up or they added and they you know, move things around in terms of the way that they narrated those particular narrations. So that's verse number three. And then in verse number four, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And indeed, the life of the hereafter is better for you than the life of the dunya. Right? And that is essentially what we spoke about at the end of last week. And we spoke about how the Prophet wasallam, for that reason, had no attachment to the dunya whatsoever in any way, shape or form. But that the Prophet wasallam, was someone who firmly understood and had his eye on the ball, on the prize, that he understood that it's the life of the Akhirah that we should be working for and that is the one that matters and that is the one that it is important. And so when at the end of his life, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is given the choice between remaining in the dunya or choosing 
to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he chooses Allah azza wa jal. Because he knows that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has in that life or in that existence is far greater and better than what is available in this dunya. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on to verse number 5. And Allah azza wa jal says, وَلَسَوْفَ يُعْطِيكَ رَبُّكَ فَتَرْضَى Your Lord is sure to give you so much that you will be well satisfied. And that is the translation of uh, Professor Abdul Halim. Mufti Taqi says, and of course your Lord will give you so much that you will be pleased. And Muhsin Khan, and verily your Lord will give you so that you shall be well pleased. And Sahih International, and your Lord is going to give you and you will be satisfied. Right? You will be satisfied. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that this particular verse and, and verses 3, 4 and 5 are an extension of the Jawab Al-Qasim. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath in verses 1 and 2. And then as we said in the Arabic language, when you make an oath or you take an oath, there is a reason for which that oath has been taken. And that is called the Jawab Al-Qasim. I swear by Allah, but what? Why are you swearing by Allah? What is it that you want to say or do or prove by taking an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So when Allah azza wa takes an oath, there is always a Jawab Al-Qasim. The Jawab Al-Qasim is that the Prophet hasn't been forsaken, nor is he detested. And that what is what Allah Azza wa has in the next life is better than what is in this life. And there is a third part of the Jawab Al-Qasim, and that is in verse number five. Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala, he says, and so this particular verse comes with two types of emphasis. Two types of emphasis are mentioned to show the importance of this principle in this verse. The first of them is the lamb at the beginning, wala sofa, the lamb in la sofa, and the second is the word sofa. And sofa in the Arabic language is used sometimes as a means of emphasis. Sofa is basically a word that shows that you're going to, that something is going to happen in the future. So in the Arabic language, we have the past tense, we have the present tense, and then we have the ordering tense, the fi'lul amr which is the command tense. The Arabs don't really have a future tense. In English, we have past, present, and future. The Arabs switch out the future for the command tense. So where does the future tense go? The future, where does the future tense go? Where does it fit in? It is part and parcel of the present tense. The way that you distinguish between present and future is by simply adding the letter seen or the word sofa, and both of them essentially have a very similar meaning and a very similar job that they do. And that is to show that something is going to happen in the future. The word sofa though also can be used as a means of emphasis in Arabic language because it is as if you're saying that this is indeed going to happen. Right? So Allah Azza when He says for example, Wala sofa and indeed your Lord will give to you. And this is in the future. But because there is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, doesn't that mean that it is reality? Because normally when we speak about the future, it is a hope, it is a dream, it is a desire, it is a wish. We don't know the reality. I hope and I dream, you know, that I will, uh, I don't know, for example, go and visit someone in America, go and travel to China. That is a dream. Will it happen? Allah Azza wa knows best. I can plan, I can try, but maybe it won't happen. But when Allah Azza wa says, Wala sofa, and this will happen in the future, that is a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is not a wish or a desire or a perhaps. It is we shall, right? And that's why Allah Azza wa or in some of the translations, you find the translation, your Lord is sure to give you, right? Where does that sure come from? Because you don't have the word inna, 
right? We don't have any of those normal adat uh, of tawkid. We don't have any of the normal words that emphasize something. Where does the surety come from? Or verily come from, as Muhsin Khan says in his translation, it comes from the lamb and from the sofa. Right? That's where it comes from. That's what Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin is saying, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And Ibn Ashur, Rahimahullah, says something very similar. He says that the harful istiqbal, the future tense in this verse, which is the, the word sofa, is to show that this is something which is not only going to happen for surety, but that it is already happening and will continue to happen without any cut-off point. Meaning from now, O Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we will make you pleased and happy and that will continue because it's the future tense. It continues and continues and continues until Yawm Al-Qiyamah and after Yawm Al-Qiyamah. There is no end point to this. It is something which is which will continue. And then he says also Ibn Ashur that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala, and this, this point by the way is, is something which we're going to come on into more detail because the scholars of tafsir, essentially if they differ over anything in this verse, it is this issue. That when Allah says, we will give to you, so until you are satisfied and happy and pleased, does that mean in the dunya or does that mean in the akhirah? Right? That's essentially where you have the difference of opinion. Or does it encompass both? Right? Ibn Ashur ta'ala, seems to be saying that it encompasses both. Right? And other scholars will say, no, it is referring to the dunya primarily. And others will say that it is referring to the akhirah. And I think, and Allah knows best, that all of those scholars essentially are saying the same thing. But each one of them is focusing on one part as opposed to the other. right? But essentially that they are, I think, in agreement over the general meaning of this verse. But some scholars may say, no, actually what's, what's referring to is the Akhirah. That's what Allah is speaking about in terms of his pleasure, in terms of the reward that he's, he has for him and so on. That it's more heavily focused on the Akhirah rather in the, than the dunya. Because the Prophet وسلم, as we know, had, a, a, um, you know, had, had hardships in the dunya and he had difficulties in the dunya sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ibn Ashur says, but in the verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also doesn't mention how he's going to please the Prophet So in terms of just looking at the linguistics, the Arabic of this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the letter lamb and the word sofa, la sofa. Both of them are to emphasize something and to show that it is present into future. Right? Present into future. Number two, that when he says, وَلَا سَوْفَ يُعْطِيكَ We will give to you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't define what it is that he's giving to him. He simply defines to him the end goal of what is being given and that is that he will please you and bring you that type of contentment in your heart. So it's not the, you know, like sometimes when someone gives you a gift, it's not necessarily the gift that's being given, but rather it is the feeling that comes with that gift, the way that it makes you feel, the appreciation that you feel, the understanding that you have that that person loves you and they like you or that they adore you or that they respect you and so they've gone out of their way to think, you know, as we often say in the English language, it is the thought that counts, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, we will give to you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he doesn't define what. And Ibn Ashur says the reason for that is because to show that it includes everything, that it's not restricted to one thing only. It is not just wealth, or it is not just you know uh, a great number of followers, or it is not just one of the of the blessings that the Prophet will be given on Yom Al Qiyamah. It's not just the great intercession of the Day of Judgment, or it's not the you know just the 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 uh, river of Al Kawthar, or it's not just the highest level in Jannah. It is everything because when you say I will give to you until you are pleased, it is far more eloquent than to say that I will give to you X, Y, and Z because that kind of restricts what it is that you're giving. And then he says, 
uh, Ibn Ashur was still with Ibn Ashur in his in his uh, linguistic study of this verse. He says, and the fa at the end of the verse in the last word fatarda, the fa is for taqib. The letter fa has a number of functions in the Arabic language. One of its most common is to show that something is immediate. So when you know when 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 I say uh, you know umira zaydun bil julusi Zaid was commanded to sit down, so he sat down. Fajalas. The fahir is to show that he sat down immediately. Because you could say, you know, someone was told to sit down and they sat down. Okay, but when? Five minutes later, an hour later, a day later, when did they sit down? But when you say fajalas, so he sat down, meaning right there and then immediately he sat down. So that's one of the main functions of the letter fa, and it's often used in the Arabic language. The letter here, and so that's what Ibn Ashur is saying that the, the fahir is for ta'aqib. So if we understand that the pleasure that Allah Azza is speaking about giving to the Prophet is immediate, then that shows the position of some of those scholars who said that those uh, blessings begin in the dunya, right? That, 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 that giving or those, that, that uh, bounty of Allah Azza towards the Prophet begins in the dunya. It's not just something which is for the akhirah. That's a position that you find among some of the scholars of tafsir. And I think the reason for, and Allah knows best, the reason for that difference that you find some scholars concentrating more on the dunya and others concentrating on the akhirah. Uh, and those scholars of the dunya, I think, will also say that it extends to the akhirah. But those scholars who kind of concentrated on the dunya aspect that is concerning the Prophet having lots of followers, the conquest of Mecca, the spreading of Islam across the Arabian Peninsula, etc., etc. What it's referring to in that sense they seem to have taken from the, this letter fa, right? They seem to have taken from the letter fa, and so those are the three linguistic issues that Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah taala, kind of touches upon. Al Imam Al Tabari, rahimahullah taala, he says that the meaning of this verse was so fajrutika rabbuka fatarda, and surely we will give to you Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam so much that you will be pleased. Is he says that we will give to you, meaning that Allah azza wa makes an oath or takes an oath or commands that the Prophet will receive in the Akhirah from the great bounties and blessings of Allah until he is pleased. Right? Until he is pleased. And so this is a position that Imam Al-Tabari chooses, that it's referring to the Akhirah and that is a position of the majority of the scholars of Tafsir. The majority of the scholars of Tafsir choose to focus this verse on the Akhirah and the pleasures that Allah will give to the Prophet in the Akhirah. Right? That seems to be the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir. But what Imam al-Tabari says is where you will find the differences in the statements, especially of the early scholars, is not so much about whether it's the dunya or the akhirah that's being referred to. It seems the majority seem to lean towards it being the akhirah. Rather, the difference is in terms of defining what it is that Allah will give to the Prophet. What is it that Allah will give to him that will make him so pleased? Right? That's what it's referring to. And so... He mentions a number of statements of some of the scholars of the past. For example, he has one that's uh, apparently a, a report from or a narration of Ibn, Ibn Abbas عنهما, that the Prophet saw the khayrat, he saw the, the blessings that, the, that his ummah would receive after he passed away وسلم, that they would be amongst the people of the ummah, people who are wealthy and that the dunya would be opened upon them and that they would conquer the Persian and Roman empires and so they would have a great deal of wealth. And this is something which pleased the Prophet وسلم, So Allah said to him that in Jannah he will give to him thousands of palaces full of you know, servants and maids and everything else as, uh, as a means of 
um, as a means of of of, uh, of pleasing the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and that's why Qatada rahimahullah and others actually say that this is referring to Yawm al-Qiyamah. Right? It's referring to Yawm al-Qiyamah. Others from amongst them, such as the Suddi, they said that what it's referring to is that none of the, the, the that the it is referring to the pleasure of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that none of his ummah should enter into the fire. None of his ummah should enter into the fire. And this is the statement of a Suddi. And a Suddi is one of the scholars of tafsir, but he is considered amongst many to be a, a weak narrator in hadith. But his, his statements in tafsir are generally widely quoted and, and accepted as being a, a scholar of tafsir. Uh, Ibn al-Qayyim, ta'ala, he dismisses this position and he actually very strongly dismisses it. Because he says that how is it possible that the Prophet could be upset with Allah's command and his decree? Because we know that Allah has commanded and decreed that amongst Muslims there will be those who will go into the fire for the sins that they have committed because of a lack of tawbah or because of obligations that they didn't fulfill and meet, that they will be punished in the fire of hell for a determined period by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then Allah azza will extract them and he will enter them into Jannah. How is it possible that the Prophet could be displeased with something that Allah is pleased to do, that Allah has ordained, that Allah has commanded? Right? And so Ibn, Ibn, Ibn Qayyim didn't like this tafsir. Right? And he said that this is not a good tafsir to have because it seems to intimate that the Prophet likes something that Allah has decreed as being something which, uh, you know, which is part of the uh, which is which is part of one of the other you know explanations of this statement of a Sudi could be that Allah Azzawajal has pleased the Prophet by saying that none of them will remain for eternity in Hawfire. That eventually every believer will come out and Allah Azzawajal knows best. Al Hassan al Basri Ta'ala and Abu Ja'far al Baqir amongst others they said that what's being referred to is the Shafa'a. That when Allah Azzawajal says that we will give to you until you are pleased is referring to the great intercession of the day of judgment. And others from amongst the scholars said that it's referring to the dunya, right? And what is, we you know what the Prophet will receive in the dunya in terms of conquest and victory, and victory and conquest, and in terms of the number of followers that he would have from his Ummah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti mentions this position in his tafsir, as does al-Mawardi in his tafsir, and al-Baydawi amongst others, right? And I think, as we said, that the reasoning for that, and Allah knows best, is because of that a letter of fa in fatarda which seems to show that there is some immediacy right referring uh, to this ibn kathir ta'ala however himself uh, he also chooses the position that it's referring to the akhirah and he says that allah will give to the prophet in the next life until he is happy and that is happiness and pleasure him being pleased with regards to his ummah and the state of his ummah it's happiness and pleasure or him being pleased in terms of the the karamat or the the favors and the bounties that Allah will bestow upon him from amongst them the and from amongst them is he says the river of al kawthar right and so Allah subhanahu wa taala will will be will be happy with all of that and as Sheikh Muhammad al Amin Shaqiti rahimahullah taala he says the same thing he says that Allah subhanahu wa taala will give him and give to him until he is pleased and he says and that is in the akhirah and that is the position of the jumhur he says. It is the position of the majority of the scholars. Shaqiti mentions both opinions. But then he says, and it is the position of the Jumhur, the majority, that it is in the Akhirah. And that is everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give to him. From amongst those things is what Allah Azza wa mentions in the Quran. Asa in Yabatlaka Rabbuka Maqam Mahmuda. Right? 
and that is that Allah Azzawajal will give to him or resurrect him upon the praiseworthy station. What is the praiseworthy station? As is explained in the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, that it's that position of him being the only one who can make the great intercession to stand before Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and ask Allah Azzawajal to begin the 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 judgment of that day of Yom Al Qiyamah. And he continues Shanqiti, and he says, and also from what Allah Azzawajal will give to him is the Hawd the pond that he has been that has been prepared for him sallallahu alaihi wasallam and from that which he which was which will be given to him also is al wasila which is a high station that no one else can have except for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as is mentioned in the hadith of repeating after the muzzin you know the famous dua that we make after the adhan and from what allah azza will favor him with is there many other forms of intercession that he will be granted sallallahu alaihi wasallam such as allowing or interceding for certain people from his ummah that their level be raised in jannah or certain people from his ummah that they be saved from the punishment of the fire or even <coughs> in terms of the uh, the the intercession that he will have sallallahu alaihi wasallam for his own uncle abu talib that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lessen his punishment in the fire and likewise, from what Allah Azza will give to him is by to make him the uh, the witness over all of the nations and all of the prophets, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And he goes on. So the point is that he says that all of this, right? When we speak about it, Allah Azza doesn't define one or the other because everything is in included. Ibn Qayyim, like Ibn Ashur and others, he took the position that includes both the dunya and the akhirah. That when Allah Azza says that we will give to you until you are pleased. It is dunya and akhirah. So he says, and that is everything that Allah gave to the Prophet from the Quran, from guidance, from conquest and victory, from the many uh, people who, who followed him, وسلم, his followers, from his name being raised high in mention, as we mentioned in Surah Al-Sharh, your name will be raised high in mention, from I'la'ul kalima, that his message will reign supreme, that his call will reign supreme. And then he says, and that which Allah will give to him after his death, and on the day of judgment, Amr Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give to him in Jannah. So he includes all of this, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala says, and I think that, that is a good position, and it joins between them, and that is, and Ibn Qayyim seems to understand, therefore, that those statements that we have of the scholars of tafsir, are them just focusing on one aspect, not necessarily excluding all of the aspects, right? And we've spoken about this numerous times before, as it being a in terms of it being a methodology of studying the tafsir, and that is the position of Ibn Al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala. So in verses one to five, essentially, Allah subhanahu wa taala has taken an oath, and then Allah azza wa jalla has laid down principles, given to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, firm principles in terms of how the Prophet is loved by Allah and cared for by Allah and his reward has been guaranteed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and saved and preserved for him Now in the next verses, in the next few verses, we essentially have a, 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 a splitting in two, right? two categories of verses. The first category which is verses 6, 7 and 8 is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala displaying the evidence of what has come before. So verses 3, 4, and 5, Allah says that the Prophet وسلم, is not has not been forsaken, has not been detested, that his reward in the Akhirah will be greater, that he will be rewarded until he is pleased. Now Allah in verses 6, 7, and 8 shows the reason why that is the case. What the Prophet can look upon to understand that that is the reality of Allah Taala's promise. 
That is what Allah Azza wa has guaranteed to him. His proof is in his life, right? It's like, you know, if someone goes to you or says to you that your parents love you and you say, yes, they love me. And then they ask you for proof. Right? It's not necessarily that they, you know, wrote it down or that it's some, you know from their interaction and from what they did and how they looked after you and what they did for you and the sacrifices that they made for you. That is a testament to their love, right? And that's the same, uh, you know, for a husband towards a wife and vice versa and siblings and so on and friends. That is often the case, right? Uh, you know, even teachers and students, it is often the case that you see it from their character and what they do rather than anything verbal. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the evidences to the Prophet and then the last few verses refer to the Prophet being called to action. What he should do now that he understands these principles and now that he understands this. What should he do? Just as in Surah Al-Sharh in the previous surah, which we said there is a very strong link and connection between these two surahs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after mentioning all of his favors upon the Prophet and establishing the principle of Inna ma'al usri yusra, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him a call to action. And it will be something similar in this surah as well. So in verse number six, we have the first reminder, the first proof, if you like of how the Prophet was loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how Allah has always cared for him and given him his divine attention and protection. And that is the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Alam yajidka yatiman fa'awa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the translation of Mufti Taqi, did he not find you an orphan and give you shelter? Muhsin Khan, did he not find you an orphan and give you a refuge? Abdul Halim, did he not find you an orphan and shelter you? And Sahih International did not find you an orphan and give you refuge. And as you can see from this, that all of the uh, the translators, at least the ones that we've read anyway, uh, understand the word yateen to refer to as being an orphan. right? And this is something which we will speak about uh, shortly because some of the scholars said actually it has a slightly different meaning. The word yateen in the Arabic language, as we know, generally speaking, refers to an orphan. right? That's the general meaning of the word yateen whenever it comes whenever you come across it in the Arabic language, in the Quran, in the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, right, the Yatama, the Masakin, the Yatim is someone who is an orphan. And the orphan in the Arabic language, in, in the culture of the Arabs, was someone who had lost their father only. So it was enough, because in English, as we know, an orphan is only called an orphan if he has neither father nor mother alive. A child that has neither a father or a mother is called an orphan. Obviously, once you reach adulthood and you lose your parents, you're not considered an orphan. It's for children that this term is often used because the child doesn't have or doesn't have the ability to look after their own interests yet. And so that child that loses both parents is called an orphan in you know, Western English culture. In the Arab culture, if a child loses their father, you can call them an orphan, even if their mother is still living. And that is often the case. And that's why you will find sometimes in the you know, in the, even in the biographies of scholars and others that they will say, for example, Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah was an orphan, but his mother was living and she looked after him. So they would still describe him as being an orphan. And that is very common. And likewise, the Prophet wasallam is considered to be an orphan. Now, both his parents died wasallam, when he is relatively young. But we know that his father died when the Prophet wasallam was extremely young. Some narrations say that he was yet to be born. Uh, he died even before he was born, or he was born and he was very, very young, still a baby, and his father passed away. And so we understand this position, therefore, that that is what the Arabs generally call a yatim. If you lose your father as a child, that person is called yatim. 
right? So you can, you know, even if we say for the sake of the Prophet ﷺ, that it's both of his parents because both of them passed away whilst he was relatively young, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The word fa'awa, Ibn Ashur says the word awa comes from the mustar or the root word of iwa. And iwa is basically someone that gives you shelter, someone that gives you refuge, someone that you turn back to. So you say, for example, awaitu ilal maskan. I sought refuge in my abode, in my place of residence, in my home. Because the word awa or ma'wa, right, has the meaning of it being a place that encompasses you. That is your place of abode, your, your resting place. And that's why one of the names that is given to both Jannah and the fire is ma'wa. It is called ma'wa because those for those people, it is their everlasting residence. It is their maskan. It is the place that they go, right? And the place that you go has a meaning, even though it's it's used in the in the context of the of the kuffar in, in, in the fire, it is used in the context of them uh, not having the pleasure of what a residence should mean. Right? A residence should be a place where you feel, you know, at home and at peace and tranquil and so on. But for them, Allah Azza uses it to show that this is their place of residence even though it has none of those meanings and Allah Azza wa knows best but anyway generally speaking that's the meaning of the word ma'wa right and so when you know when you say that you're going home even if you're a guest at someone else's house that person is your brother your maybe your your grandparents maybe someone else but it's not your home and you don't live there or you've never lived there you will never feel 100% open and uncomfortable and so because the nature of your home is your home the freedom that you have of expression, of being able to relax, of being able to do things in your home is never the same when you are a guest in someone else's home, even if that person is very close to you, right? Unless maybe you live with them, you know, for uh, weeks and months and, and then you kind of settle down in that place. In itself, it becomes a kind of ma'wa, right? And so that's the meaning of the word uh, ma'wa or awa. And Ibn Ashur ta'ala also says that from the meanings of this word or from the meanings and the connotations of this word, is that therefore that it is also something that gives you protection, guardianship. So your home is a place that also protects you, right? So you come back at home at night and you come to your home, or if the weather is not good and it's, it's, or the weather is very bad, you, you seek refuge in your home, right? It has those connotations and that meaning. The word home has, even the word in English, the word home has a certain connotation to it and a certain meaning, one of tranquility, one of peace, one of security, one of shelter, right? All of those are meanings that are present even in the English word of, of, of home and in the Arabic word of iwa or ma'wa or awa as is mentioned here in the form of the verb. Yeah, Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the blessings that Allah gave to our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and from those blessings is that even though he was an orphan, meaning, and why, why is he called an orphan? Amongst the Arabs, the orphans were people who had no rights. And even though their mother may still be living, she has no rights because she's a widow. The widows and the orphans have no rights. And so this person may be chucked out of their own home, expelled from their own home. The, the wealth of their father that by right should come to them as inheritance could be withheld from them. Right? His mother, the, the mother of the child, may have been forced to remarry because she's still considered to be, you know, under the kind of guardianship of her husband's family. So 
he doesn't have the child unless the people are good and they're righteous and as obviously was in the case of the Prophet that he was given a good upbringing and, and his grandfather and his uncle stood up to that role. But it is also very easily possible that that's not the case and those people are oppressed and those people are harmed and those people, their rights are taken from them. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or rather Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala he says that when Allah azza wa describes to the Prophet from his greatest blessings that Allah azza wa bestowed upon him, he mentions this one. Were you not someone who was in that state of being an orphan but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you a ma'wa, right? He is someone who found for you a place, found for you a home, found for you protection, found for you love and support and care that allowed you then to grow up in that way Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And this is the position of the majority of the scholars of tafsir That the meaning of the word yateen Is referring to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's nature of an orphan Him being an orphan as a child right? Whether you, know, you include the mother in that or not Either way he is considered to be an orphan And this is the statement of Al-Imam Al-Tabari It's the statement of Ibn Kathir it's a, It seems to be what Ibn Qayyim and Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi Amongst many others have chosen this particular position right? that it's referring to. Uh, this is what it is referring to. Yet others said that what it's referring to, the word yatim in this particular context, is referring to the fact that the Prophet is an orphan in the sense that no one has any right or favor over him. So if you're an orphan and your grandfather looks after you or your uncle takes you in or a cousin takes you in or someone else comes and they, uh, they foster you or they adopt you, they, those people have a favor over you. With the Prophet وسلم, no favor was allowed to be given. His f- grandfather takes him in, his uncle takes him in after that. No other person has any favor. And those, both of them, pass away relatively, one before Islam obviously, and the other one relatively early in Islam. So they don't have, no one else has a favor over them. Abu Lahab can't come and claim favor. Abu Jahl doesn't come and claim favor. No one else can claim favor. And this is a position that was chosen by Abu Hayyan in his tafsir. And it is mentioned by Al-Qurtubi and others as being also the statement of Ja'far al-Sadiq, right, from the descendants of Hussein radiallahu an. So that's another position that you will find. The third position that you will find is that it is, and this is ascribed as being the, the statement of Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala, that it's from the statement of the Arabs of Durratun Yatima, uh, which basically essentially means that it's referring to a pearl, a single pearl, right, and uh, if you like a a, uh, a rare pearl, a rare precious stone. So a durra is like a precious stone, a pearl or a diamond or something which is... And yatim in this context means that it is rare. Meaning there's only one of a kind. You know, sometimes you hear in the news reports they found a diamond or something. It's only one of a kind or, or you know, maybe one of the royal families somewhere in the world owns, a, 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 owns something which is a one of a kind. Uh, one of a kind type of, of, of thing that they, they possess and that they own. That is called Duratun Yatim. It is a rare, precious stone. And so this is what Mujahid it is said that he said this is the meaning of the, the word Yatim in this particular context. But many scholars dismiss this as, as being uh, something which is his opinion but doesn't have any foundation. Imam Shokani, for example, Rahimullah Ta'ala in his tafsir, he said that this is ba'id, this is far-fetched, right? Because that particular context and meaning isn't the one that is most common amongst the Arabs. And as we said yesterday in our reading of Zimzami, when we were speaking about the Arabic language and how it works in the Qur'an, you only make ta'weel, you only go away from the apparent meaning to another meaning that is not so apparent, not so clear, that is more obscure 
if there is a reason to do so and you have a context or an evidence to do so. Otherwise, you take it at face value. Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he is someone who went to a slightly different understanding. And he said that the meaning of the word, or the meaning of this verse, Alam yajidka yatiman fa'awa, goes back to verse number three. Ma wadda'aka rabbuka wa ma qala. And so when Allah Azzawajal is referring to him being an orphan and then being given shelter, is referring to his spiritual state that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took him on, that Allah Azzawajal is the one who gave him that shelter and refuge, and that he is the one who allowed him to grow up in that way and to become, you know, the he says in his tafsir, he says the orphan of yesterday is the leader of tomorrow. So this boy who's an orphan, you know, who and you know by by you know in, in the convention of many cultures of that time and traditions, an orphan wouldn't have had anyone to fight for their rights. Very rarely would they have got to the position of leadership or or kingship or something else because they had no one on their side. Everyone is obviously busy with their own families and their own sons and so on. But the orphan in this case of yesterday becomes the leader of tomorrow because it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is looking after him. And that meaning doesn't necessarily go against the meaning that the majority of the scholars have of Yatim referring to his orphan status of the Prophet But this is another understanding of it, that Allah is not just speaking about him having you know, a family that, that looked after him, a grandfather or an uncle that took him in and gave him shelter, but rather what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to is how Allah prepared him in this way and helped him in this way to reach that status of prophethood sallallahu alayhi wasallam when eventually he receives prophethood. So verse number six, that is essentially what it is saying. That's the first evidence. O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, don't you remember that you were someone who was an orphan? You had neither father nor mother, nor necessarily anyone else who would come and look after you, right? But it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who gave you shelter, who protected you, who gave you his divine care and protection, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you that type of, 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 of comfort and inner peace that you needed. In verse number 7, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the second evidence. Did you not find you lost and guide you? And that is the translation of Abdul Halim. Uh, or, or he says, rather, did not find you in need and make yourself... Oh, no, no, that's the wrong one, sorry. Did not find you lost and guide you? And... Mufti Taqi says, did he not find you unaware of the way, meaning the Sharia, and guide you? And likewise, Muhsin Khan says something very similar. Did he not find you unaware of the Quran, its legal laws, prophethood, etc., and guide you? And that is because there is a difference. As you can see in the translation, there is a difference in the tafsir as to what this means when we speak about this misguidance, that you were lost or that you were unaware. Or was it a misguidance? You know, was it literally a misguidance? What, what is it exactly referring to? Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that we found you upon other than what you were upon today, meaning that you didn't understand prophethood and then you were guided towards prophethood. That's what's being referred to. It's referring to two states, the state before prophethood and after prophethood. So not necessarily a misguidance of he's on shirk and kufr because we know as is by ijma' of the scholars of Islam that the Prophet never committed shirk and wasn't upon uh, you know, the practices of the pagans of Quraysh or the Arabs in general. But what it means is that the Prophet didn't understand anything else either, meaning he didn't see another way either, very clearly, until Allah Azza wa gave to him Prophethood And this seems to be the position of 
of many of the scholars of tafsir, what Imam al-Tabari says seems to be the position of the majority. Al-Hasan al-Basri and al-Dahak and Tawus were from amongst those scholars who said that the meaning of wajadaka dalan is that you were unaware of prophethood and the rulings of the Sharia, that you were unaware of them and then you were guided towards them. Right? And that's one of the translations that you had, the one of Muhsin Khan and so on. That's essentially what it is referring to. Referring to. And as Suddi says something similar, he says that you were upon the, state, the way of your people for 40 years and then you found your path, meaning the path that Allah Azzawajal gave to him. So that seems to be the first position. That is referring to the Prophet being unaware, right? Being unaware and then finding uh, finding a way back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through prophethood and through what he had. And we will mention some other statements of some of the scholars concerning this as well. Another uh, interpretation that you will find of the meaning of the word dalan is what is ascribed as being a statement of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And when I say sometimes that it's ascribed as being a statement, it's because I'm not sure of its authenticity and veracity. But it's mentioned anyway in the books of Tafsir as being one of his statements. And that is that it's referring to a, an occasion when the Prophet was young. And he was with his uncle Abu Talib and they were traveling and on a journey and the Prophet became lost. Uh, that's one version. Another version is that it was in the city of Mecca itself. And the Prophet was young and he became lost in its alleyways. As he was walking, he became separated and lost. And that it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that that returned him back. The story when he's older and traveling is with Abu Talib when he's younger is with his grandfather Abdul Muttalib. So we're talking because it is said that Abdul Muttalib lived until the Prophet was around eight years old. So he's a very young child and you can imagine you know, anyone that has a child or knows a young child that if you are in the mall or a marketplace or somewhere that's very busy and congested and you lose sight of a very young child, how easier it is for them to become disorientated and how difficult it may become for you to locate them. May Allah Azza wa save us. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, this, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah says that this is what is being referred to and then you were guided, meaning that you found your way back to your grandfather or to your uncle. Right? That is another position that you will find. Uh, Al-Imam al-Tirmidhi, he says that you were, the meaning of the word dal is that you didn't know remembrance, meaning that, you, uh, that people didn't know of you. You were unaware, not you were unaware, but people were unaware of you. People were unaware of who you were. They didn't know you. They didn't know your status. They didn't know anything about your name. And then Allah Azza wa Jal guided you or guided them to you. Right? Guided them to you, meaning that your affair became known through prophethood and they were guided towards you and you showed them the path of guidance. That is also one of the tafsir that you will find. Uh, Ibn Atiyah, he says, remember that when we speak about al-dalal, there are two types of misguidance. He says one that is a far misguidance, a clear misguidance, and one that is a slight misguidance. The far misguidance is the misguidance of the Quraysh in their worship of idols and in their paganism and in the idolatry and so on. But he says that there is a closer misguidance, meaning or a closer, and, and this is essentially what he's saying is the same statement as Imam al-Tabari that the closer type or the slight misguidance, if you like, is a person just not knowing. So the Prophet never participated or, part, or, or uh, participated in the actions of Quraysh and their shirk and everything else that they did. But at the same time, he would just stand and observe and watch. He wasn't comfortable with what they did, but he wasn't yet sure what other way to take us either. And so essentially he's waiting, right? And he's stopped and he's waiting for some type of guidance or some type of of uh, you know of, of instruction and that's the tafsir that was chosen 
by Ibn Kathir and al-Imam uh, Shaykh Ibn Sa'di ta'ala, they essentially what they do is they say that the meaning of this is the verse of the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says مَا كُنْتَ تَدْرِي مَا الْكِتَابُ وَلَا الْإِيمَانُ وَلَكِنْ جَعَلْنَاهُ نُورًا نَهْدِي بِهِ مَنْ نَشَاءُ مِنْ عِبَادِنَا You didn't know, you were unaware of the book meaning the Quran and Iman, faith in Allah, but we are the one who gave to you light and we guide whomsoever we wish through that light, right? That's their tafsir. So when Allah says that he was upon, he was lost, meaning he was unaware, that he didn't know, that he had yet to come across the, the revelation that Allah would give to him an Iman, and so he's in that state of not knowing. And that's essentially what Ibn Atiyah is saying as well. There's an, uh, an important point to mention here that you will find in some of the books of tafsir. And that is that some of them use a narration that the Prophet وسلم, that seems to intimate that the Prophet actually did partake in certain aspects of the actions of the people of Quraysh. They use a narration that is mentioned by Imam Al-Tabarani and Imam Ahmad in his Musnad and others that the Prophet وسلم, came across uh, the famous uh, the famous man from amongst the people of Quraysh, Amr, uh, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl is the father of Sa'id ibn Zayd radiyallahu Sa'id ibn Zayd is one of the ten companions that was promised paradise by the Prophet His father was like Waraqa ibn Nawfal, one of those people that was known as the Hanifiyin, right? the people upon the religion of Ibrahim and his practice. And so they didn't partake in shirk, they didn't worship idols, they didn't sacrifice to idols, they didn't do any of that stuff. And they were the extreme minority amongst the Arabs. But they were unhappy with their practices, but obviously this is before the Prophet comes, so they are holding on to what they know of that you just worship Allah alone and you don't partake with anything in terms of to do with idolatry. They don't have anything more, there's no salah, there's no siyam, there's nothing else, no sharia has been revealed. This is just what they have, the remnants of the region of Ibrahim Islam, like Waraqa ibn Nawfal, the cousin of Khadija radiallahu anha. And likewise, Amr, uh, Zayd ibn Amr ibn Nufayl. Zayd ibn Amr, his son, obviously Sa'id ibn Zayd, becomes one of the most senior, well-known companions of the Prophet sallam, and he's from the early Muslims radiallahu His father died before the Prophet sallam could, uh, you know, he, he, it is said that he died at the very beginning of his prophethood. And there are narrations that seem to show that he accepted him, the Prophet or that his affair wasn't yet open. The Prophet hadn't yet openly started preaching Islam, and Zayd ibn Amr had passed away. And there are narrations that say, and, and some of them are, are authentic and Allah knows best, that the Prophet said that I saw Zayd ibn Amr in Jannah, because he was holding upon on, onto the religion of of the of the of, of uh, Ibrahim alayhi which is the religion of Tawheed before the Prophet came. Either way. There is a narration in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed that once the Prophet met Zayd ibn Amr and he was, Zayd ibn Amr was invited to eat food alongside them. And Zayd ibn Amr said, I don't eat this food. This is food that I don't eat because it's being sacrificed to idols. And he walked away. And the narration says, and then the Prophet never ate for such, from such food ever again. Which basically says what means what? Means that he was eating before. And then he decides not to. And this is obviously before Islam. This is before prophethood. Did the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and because if he eats from that food, what does that mean? It means that he basically partook in some of the aspects of the life of Quraysh, right? In terms of eating their haram food that was sacrificed to their idols. But this particular wording of this narration is munkar. 
is not accepted. It is rejected by the majority of the scholars. Imam al-Dhahabi was amongst those scholars who mentioned this and he went into some detail. The authentic narration that is in al-Bukhari doesn't have this wording. And I'm mentioning this here because Ibn Qayyim has a whole long thing on others as well about the importance of verifying narration, just like we did about the cause of revelation for Surah Al-Duha and what Ibn Hajar says because things get mixed up very easily. And one of the biggest mistakes that we have is when we pick up a book of tafsir, we take everything for granted. The student of knowledge has to be able to determine and one of the benefits of, of studying with someone, reading to someone and questioning this stuff is to be able to see that actually maybe he made a mistake. Maybe there's confusion here. Maybe there is, and, and this is one such example. The authentic narration in Al-Bukhari, and look at the difference now, the narration that I mentioned to you in the Tabarani and other uh, books of, of, of collections of hadith, says what? The Prophet is eating, Zayd ibn Amr is invited, he says no, I don't eat this food because it's being sacrificed to idols, and then the Prophet never ate from such food again. The authentic narration that is in Al-Bukhari says what? Says the Prophet once came across Zayd ibn Amr, and the Prophet was offered food and he refused. He said, no, I don't want to eat that. And Zayd ibn Amr is then offered the same food and he says, no, I don't want to eat it because it's been sacrificed for idols. So the Prophet didn't understand necessarily why, but he was uncomfortable and he wouldn't eat from that food. And that is the authentic narration. And it's important to mention this point because it is important to understand this, uh, this issue that we're speaking about because it obviously also, uh, you know, kind of falls into what it is that we're referring to as well. Uh, and that's why Imam Al-Qurtubi ta'ala, he says that the meaning of the word dalal is that he's unaware because one of the meanings of the word dalal, which obviously is usually uh, translated as being misguidance, one of its meanings is in the Arabic language to be unaware, to not know, ghafla, to be heedless or unaware, to have to, to not know. And that is, he says, as Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Taha, La yadillu rabbi wa la yansa. When Allah is being described by the Prophet Musa, السلام, he says, my Lord is the one who does, is, un, is not unaware, nor does he forget. My Lord is, is the one who is never unaware. The word yadillu here doesn't mean that he's misguided, that my Lord is never misguided. In this context, it means that he's never unaware, nor is he someone who forgets? This is essentially what Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala is saying. There is even a statement among some of the, the scholars of tafsir and others who said that the meaning of that you were misguided or that you were unaware, whatever you want to translate it as or lost, and then we guided you, refers to him being married to Khadija radiallahu anha. That he was single and then Allah Azza guided him towards the best spouse for him and that is Khadija radiallahu anha. But that is a you know, that's a very rare statement that you will find. In fact, I think most of you probably wouldn't come across that statement in the majority of the books of tafsir. Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that this, essentially this statement, for us to understand it, is essentially he's saying the same thing as Ibn Kathir and others, that it's referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving to him guidance. Allah azza wa giving to him guidance, right? And that is the situation that he was, that, that he had, sallallahu alayhi wasallam before Islam. So before Islam, he doesn't understand the correct way to come closer to Allah, even though he knows in his heart that that's what he wants to do. I don't want to worship these idols. I don't want to do shirk. I don't want to make kufr. All of this stuff I don't want to do. What do I do instead? He doesn't know. And that is the part that he's unaware of. And so Allah Azza wa is saying 
that from the greatest blessings that he gave to him, the greatest evidences for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's care for him and his love for him and his divine protection for him is the fact that Allah guided him to that path and to the path that brings him closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that same ruling or that same principle can be taken and applied to every single Muslim. Inshallah to me, to you, to our family, or every person who says La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, irrespective of how difficult life may be, how many problems they may have, how many trials and hardships we may go through, isn't it the greatest of Allah's signs and evidences that He loves you and He cares for you, and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants good for you, and that Allah has showered upon you His mercy and His kindness and generosity that He guided you to Islam. When there are other people who, yes, even though in the dunya their life may be greater and easier and more comfortable, but they have no such guidance. And Allah has not given them that guidance. That is the greatest sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's love. And that's why that verse, The next life is better than this life. That is the standard by which we measure. So if Allah has given you any blessing that helps you to attain that standard, reach that goal, then that is a sign for Allah's love. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't give you something which helps you to attain that goal, but He gives you blessings that are on the face value of them, they are blessings, but instead they are taking you away from that goal, and they are diverting you away from that goal, then that is not a sign of goodness. Even if you're the richest, most comfortable, most happiest person in the dunya, it is not a sign of goodness. And for us as Muslims to understand that principle, to remind ourselves, to constantly have it at the forefront of our minds is so important, especially in the times that we live in today when it is so easy to become distracted, so easy for our minds minds to wander, so easy for, for, for people to, to lose sight of what is important because of the distractions and amusements that surround us from every direction. That goal there, how do I know that Allah loves me, cares for me, wants good for me? The same way that Allah told His Prophet If you've been given any blessing that brings you closer to Allah and you take that blessing as a means of coming closer to Allah, that's a sign of goodness. And that is a sign, inshallah, that Allah wants good for you and the opposite is also the truth and Allah knows best. And inshallah ta'ala, we will stop here for today's lesson. So we will conclude and uh, I don't see any questions. So inshallah. Uh, just a reminder that again next week, inshallah, 8 p.m. 8 p.m. And I hope that within the next couple of days, I will send out that survey. Please keep an eye out for it. And please, inshallah, ta'ala, try to fill it in as quickly as possible and as fully as possible so that, inshallah, by, some, by next Tuesday, we can have at least some indication of what people are saying. And maybe we can uh, mention some of those points and discuss them further. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.